right. Well, good morning, church. Glad that you are here today and that we have a chance today one more time to dive into this series that we've called Move. If you've been around this summer, I know a lot of us have been in and out, but all summer long we've been tracing through the gospel of Mark, tracing the movements of Jesus and trying to understand his movements and asking the simple question, where is Jesus calling us to make a move in our lives? So today we're going to sort of land the series next week, just to tell you what's coming next. Next week we'll start a new series that we're calling Welcome to Our House. We're going to be looking at uh, the words of Peter from 1 Peter, a letter that he wrote. Uh, We've talked a little bit about Peter through this series. Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples, closest friends. He was in his inner circle. But Peter is also the one that denied Jesus and abandoned Jesus. Then after the resurrection, uh, Jesus forgave Peter and recommissioned Peter to go out and to spread the news of, of God's great love. And that's what Peter did. And in 1 Peter, he talks to the church and he tells us that, that we are to be, for God, a house of praise. That God is the builder, that we are the living stones that, that, that builds that house and that Jesus is the cornerstone. So for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be that house? What does it mean to be that kind of church? And this will be a great time for you to invite friends uh, with you to church. In fact, on the last Sunday of that series, on September 9th, we're going to have a Bring a Friend Sunday here at Riverside. So I want to ask you to go ahead and start thinking and praying now about who could you invite that day to come with you to church on September 9th. We've got lots of plans. We'll be sharing with you soon about that Sunday. But September 9th, we'll have a special day of worship, a special time together. It's going to be great. And I would love for you to be thinking about who you could invite that day to bring with you, uh, bring some friends along for us to enjoy Bring a Friend Day here at Riverside as we wrap up that series. It'll be a great, a great thing. But today, I want to start by asking you this question. What do people do, or what do we do, when people need rescue? What do we do when people need rescue? I have a feeling that uh, a lot of you, like myself, a few weeks ago, were captivated by the story that broke of the wild boar soccer team in Thailand. Any of you guys here in track with this story a few weeks ago? It just happened this summer. It was amazing. On uh, June 23rd, The soccer team, after they finished practice, they rode their bikes over to a local cave, something they had done before. They parked their bikes, they dropped their backpacks, they took off their soccer cleats, and they made their way into this cave. The wild boar soccer team is made up of some 12 boys, ages 11 to 16. Their coach is 25 years old, and they they go into the cave to hang out, to do what they do, you know, what boys do, to go explore and discover and have a good time. But it was a rainy season, and a monsoon rain came out of nowhere and all of a sudden flash floods filled the cave and as soon as the flood water started rising the boys knew they were in trouble and if you track with the story you kind of know what happens and I won't hit all the details but they started running looking for a way to escape and they they went further into the cave in fact they went some four kilometers deep into the cave over two miles looking for an exit and escape another way to get out and they couldn't find any way to get out they found a place that was, that was high enough ground that they were out of the floodwaters, but pretty quickly they realized they were trapped. And this was a problem for a lot of reasons. I'm not sure they'd let anyone know that after soccer practice that day, they were going to go to the cave to hang out and explore. There was a chance no one really knew where they were. They didn't have any provisions. They hadn't planned for this. So they didn't have any water. They didn't have any food. They didn't have any way to sustain themselves. No one knew where they were. They didn't have any provisions with them. The 11-year-old kid, his name is Titan. Can you imagine 
being an 11-year-old boy trapped inside a dark cave with no way out, realizing your parents have no idea where you are. Can you imagine being that coach? The responsibility, the weight of the world that he felt on his shoulders in that moment. Some of the older boys started digging, thinking maybe we're close to the surface. Maybe we can, we can make our own way out. And they dug and they dug using their hands on whatever they could find around them. They dug some 16 meters. Nothing. Couldn't find a way out. Floodwaters were, were too high to, to try to go back. They were stuck. A park officer happened to come across the scene and see the bicycles and the backpacks and the soccer cleats outside the cave. And he was the one that made the call, hey, we need to search for these kids. I don't know where they are. Well, you know the story goes, that phone call unleashed a massive search for these boys. And as it happened, some British divers were the ones that, that found them on July 2nd over a week after they had entered the cave and gone missing. But when, when, when news was released that the boys were found, of course, the whole world celebrated. But what happened next was, we've got to find a way to rescue them. And what happened next was really unbelievable because people from all around the world came on location, dropped what they were doing, came to Thailand, came to the cave, came to the place. Over a thousand people from seven different countries arrived in Thailand, and they all had the same mission— to formulate and execute a plan to save every life. But of course, everyone there that day, especially those who were experts and knew what was going on, knew that the chances of all 13 boys leaving that tunnel alive, the chances were somewhere between slim and none. But this is what we do when people need rescue, right? This is what happens This is one of the things that I love about people is that most people, whenever they see a need, whenever they see people in trouble, whenever they see a crisis, they spring into action and they look for a way to help. This is is what we do. This is what what people do. We see this over and over again. Whenever there's a, a hurricane or a flood or a fire or any other kind of tornado or disaster, whenever something like this happens, people come together despite their race, despite their nationality, despite their language, despite their theology, despite their politics. All that gets checked at the door. Everybody comes together with one mission and one purpose in mind to find a way to help, to find a way to rescue, to, to, to find a way to save lives. And I think this is true of people because this is true of, of God. Every person, no matter whether they believe in this or not, we know if you're a follower of Jesus, we know this is true, that every person is created in the image of God. So every person, no matter where they live or what they believe, every person has in them, has on them the image of God. Every person has in them somewhere deep inside them imprinted part of the nature, part of the character of God. And part of the nature, part of the character of God is to save lives. Part of the nature, part of the character of God is, is to seek and save the lost. And if you haven't figured it out, that's what the cross was all about. From the very beginning of time, when, when sin entered the picture, God began formulating a plan to save people who were trapped in darkness, people who were trapped by sin, to bring them from darkness to light, to bring them from wherever they were lost back in to freedom. 
That, that's why we gather every week and we tell the story and we, we celebrate the cross. And, and we celebrate the cross not just because it's the cross, because the cross is a crucial part of the story. It's central to the story. But you know this, the cross isn't the end of the story. If the cross was the end of the story, we wouldn't be here today. If the cross was the end of the story, we wouldn't be singing these songs. You wouldn't be giving your money. We wouldn't retell the story. If the cross was just another cross, and the cross was the end of the story, and Jesus had died that day, and that was the end of the story, we wouldn't be here today. He would have just been another person who was crucified by Roman soldiers and who died. And the cross would remain as an instrument of torture and death, but it certainly wouldn't be on the stage. And you and I certainly wouldn't be here today. The reason we gather today and the reason that we have the cross on the stage today is because we know the cross wasn't the end of the story. That there's more to the story. And what Mark does in his gospel is he wants to tell us that the cross wasn't the end. Most of Mark leads up to the moment where the cross happens. But Mark doesn't want to end his gospel, doesn't want to end his story of the life, death, and, oh, by the way, what's coming around next, the resurrection of Jesus, without telling us that there's more to the story. So if you ever have your Bibles today, I want to invite you to open up to Mark 16. And I want us to read the end of Mark's gospel because Mark does something, honestly, no other gospel writer did. He does something that's so strange and for a lot of people is really confusing he wants to tell us that there's, there's more to the story, but he does something that's really bizarre at the end of his gospel. If you have your Bibles, you can track along with me. If you have the Bible app, you can follow along there as well. Mark 16, verse 1. This is what Mark says happens next. After Jesus is crucified and dies. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out And purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Now Jesus was crucified about 9 a.m. according to Mark on Friday. He died at 3 p.m. that same day which was incredibly unusual. Typically when people were crucified they died slowly. That's why crucifixion was, was such a terrible way to die. That's why it was such an extreme form of punishment. It was torture that ended in death. In fact, when Joseph came to Pilate to request the body of Jesus to be taken down from the cross so he could bury it, Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead. He'd only been crucified a few hours ago. How is it possible that he's dead already? So he called his soldiers and said, hey, is Jesus, is he really dead? Like already? It's only, it's only three o'clock. How is he dead already? And so the soldiers went and checked and they put a spear in his side. And sure enough, Jesus isn't, he didn't pass out. He's not asleep. He's dead. He's dead. And once his death is confirmed, Pilate gives permission to Joseph to take his body down from the cross and bury it. And they went to do that, but because it was Passover, they weren't able to complete his burial before sundown that day. And so the women are on the way back to the tomb finish the funeral. The woman who had been there during his ministry, the woman who had been there at the cross, the woman who had seen him die, and the woman who had began the burial process on Friday now come back to finish the funeral. So very early, verse 2, on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. And on the way, they were asking each other, Um, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. 
When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You were looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, even Peter, even Peter who said he wouldn't deny me, even Peter who said he wouldn't abandon me, but who did deny me three times and did abandon me at the cross and left me all alone. Tell him and the other disciples this, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see him there just as he told you before he died. And then Mark does something really bizarre to end his gospel in verse 8. He wrote this, The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Now, at this point in your Bible, you're probably going to see a note that looks something like this, and I want to just talk about this for a minute. It probably says something like this, The most ancient manuscripts of Mark conclude with verse 16.8. Later manuscripts add one or both of the following endings. Now, I want to take a quick time out and talk about this because I think this is, this is important and this is relevant, especially to our time today. Your Bible, it's really amazing how incredibly accurate it is, how it's, been, how it's survived and, and, and been preserved through the centuries to what you have today. And it's incredibly reliable. You need to know that. In fact, if you were to take the documents that make up your Bible, the manuscripts that we have, the, the number of copies we have, the, the dates of the original copies we have uh, compared to when they were written to when the earliest ones that we have, and you stack that evidence up against any other writings by any other author uh, from antiquity, the Bible wins in a landslide. It's incredibly, incre- it's incredible how accurate and how much we have to go off of when translating what you have in your hands that we call the scriptures. And what scholars do when they, when they try to translate the Bible into our language is they go back, they try to go back to those earliest manuscripts. They want to get as close as they can to when they believe they were originally written to get the most accurate version of what the author wrote. And the oldest manuscripts of Mark actually end here in verse 8, which is a little bizarre. It's, it's, it's kind of strange. It's kind of strange because it ends, it ends with, with no one seeing the resurrected Jesus. We're told he's alive, but no one has seen him. It ends with, with the women who, if you read the entire Gospel of Mark in one sitting, what you'll find out is the women were the only group throughout the entire Gospel of Mark who did not abandon Jesus. Like, they were always there. They didn't deny him. They didn't abandon him. They didn't leave him. They were in his ministry. They were there at his crucifixion. They were there at his death. They were there at the tomb. And now they're coming back on the day of his resurrection. But Mark ends with this statement that they leave And at this point, at the very end of the story, he drops the bomb. But the one group that hadn't abandoned Jesus, here they fail him. They're entrusted with a message. The gospel message to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is alive. To be the first ones to announce this. To be the first ones to preach this. And they fail Jesus. Not only that, but if you go back to the original language, this verse actually ends in the middle of a sentence. In fact, just to, just to show you how it might end, if you were to translate it more literally, it would go something like this. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid and dot, dot, dot. This is why, if I'm just being completely transparent and honest with you, scholars throughout the years have had a real issue with the ending of Mark. Like, is this really how it ended? And for a long time... 
the thought was no. That there's probably more somewhere and we just don't have it. There's probably, there's probably more that he wrote, but we don't know where it is. It, it got lost, you know, through the ages. But more recently, scholars have come to think, actually, this, this might have been actually how it really ended. Because what scholars tend to do when they translate your text is they always try to take the hardest version. Because it's typically the hardest one that, 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 that is the most accurate. It's as if Mark ended by saying, this isn't the end. Instead, it's to be continued. In other words, this, this is the end, but it's not the end. There's more to the story, and you as the reader, you as the church, you get to decide where the story goes from here. The women come to the tomb. They receive the news that Jesus is resurrected. They didn't tell anyone. They left terrified and afraid. And what about you? What will you do with this message That Jesus is alive. Mark ends his gospel with a sense of, you know what? It's to be continued. We're going to see how the story goes from here, but it's really in your hands. Well, here's what I think is really interesting. This, as you might imagine, this drove the first readers of Mark crazy. It drove them nuts. You know, they, they needed the rest of the story. And so what the church did as early as the second century is they began authoring, they began writing different endings to Mark to kind of put a nice bow at the end of it. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you hate it when those TV shows or those movies, they end abruptly and it didn't put a bow on the end. Like you need the story to end happy, right? Mark doesn't end. And so the church needed a way to put a bow in it. They needed a way to tie it all together and make it make sense. And so these two endings have emerged throughout the centuries to the gospel of Mark. This is what the church came up with. Here's here's the shorter ending. I want to show you both of these, at least parts of them. And I want you to see one thing that rises to the top that the church thought was so important post-resurrection that it needed to be included at the end of Mark for it to all make sense. Here's the shorter ending. Then they, the women briefly reported all this to Peter and and his companions. Afterward, Jesus himself sent them out from east to west with a sacred and unfailing message of salvation that gives eternal life. In just two sentences, they put a big bow on the end of the story of Jesus according to Mark. And they tell you that a few, three things, right? One, Peter got the news. Peter who denied Jesus, Peter who abandoned Jesus, he got the news. Jesus is alive. Not only that, but the the disciples, they got word too. And this was what they were to do post-resurrection. Post-Jesus rising from the grave, this was what was going to happen. Jesus himself sent them out from east to west with a sacred an unfailing message of salvation that gives eternal life. I don't know about you, I think this is hugely significant that the church thought this is how the story should end. That they, this, the way they saw this was that the, the mission of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus was not done yet. And then in fact, now it was the church's job to pick up the mission of Jesus, to continue his ministry, to seek and save the lost. That now it was their job to be a part of the international rescue team, pointing all those who were lost, all those who were far from God, to the good news that, that, that God, God's love is amazing. It is unfailing. And he is the only God who saves. And this same thing comes up on the longer ending of Mark as well. If you, if you track in your Bible to verse 9, this is the longer version. And I won't read all of it, but let me read part of it to you. Verse 9, after Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person 
who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went to the disciples who were, were grieving and weeping and told them what had happened. But when she told them that Jesus was alive she, and she had seen him, they didn't believe her. So, so what the church is doing here is they're writing this ending. Is They're pulling from Matthew. They're pulling from Luke. They're pulling from John. They're pulling from the writings of Acts. They're pulling from tradition to say this is what happened. And, and that, that the disciples were told that, that, that Jesus was alive, but they didn't believe him. Verse 12, afterward he appeared in a different form to two of his followers who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. This is probably from Luke. They rushed back to tell others, but no one believed him. Twice now, no one believes him. Still later, verse 14, he appeared to the 11 disciples as they were eating together. He rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe those who had seen him after he had been raised from the dead. So quick side note, if for whatever reason you're here today and you have refused to believe that Jesus is really alive, you're not alone. Right here in the course of six verses, three times we're told that the people who were closest to Jesus, his disciples, who had been with him for some three years, Three times in six verses, we find out that after his resurrection, they, in fact, didn't believe it either. And you know what's really amazing? If you have a hard time believing that Jesus is alive, it's because of people just like you. You're the reason that we believe what we believe. It's because they didn't believe, but then they saw Jesus, and after seeing Jesus, they believed so deeply that it was true, that every one of them gave their life for that truth. That's why we're here today. Because we believe on their testimony that what they said is true. Because they gave their life. They could have backed out at any time if they didn't believe it. But none of them did. Every single one of them gave their life for the truth. They didn't believe it at first. But then they did when they saw Jesus. And they believed it so deeply they gave everything. It cost them everything. And when they did see Jesus, in verse 15, he told them this. And you may want to underline these words. Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone, anyone in the world who believes and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe will be contemned. Jesus tells them, now, this is your job. This is your calling. This is what you are to do. Take this message. This message of the great love of God that is evidenced on the cross and now is evidenced in my resurrection. And go tell the whole world you are a part of the international search and rescue team to take this message to all who otherwise will be lost and tell them of God's amazing love. And the church believed so deeply that this was their calling, that in both of these versions that were probably added to Mark later, they wrote this in. This is our identity. And there is a sense of urgency that this is our calling. And this calling isn't just for some. This calling is for all who believe in Jesus, for all who call themselves disciples of Jesus, for all who call themselves followers of Jesus. This is what we are called to do. We are called to be a part of the ministry and the mission of Jesus. And that mission has to be white hot. That we know that there's nothing that's going to come between us and what we are called to do to save and to rescue those who are far from God. To seek 
and to save the lost. But here's what I've been wondering this week. That if it were up to us, if it were up to you, would you have written a different ending to the Gospel of Mark? And just be honest. Because my sense is, for myself and and for a lot of us, certainly not all of us, but for a lot of us, we've lost a sense of that urgency. We've lost a sense of our mission. And, And I should say God's mission. It's not our mission. It's God's mission. We've lost a sense of his mission to seek and save the lost. We've lost that urgency. We've lost that identity that the first church had to go into all the world, to preach the good news that Jesus is alive and to point other people to the only God who saves. But this is our mission too. This is what we're called to do. What I love about the story of of the rescue of the wild boar soccer team in Thailand is that you had so many people coming together on location and they had a white-hot sense of their mission to save, to rescue every single life. And on July 10th, that's what happened. The last three boys, along with the soccer coach, were brought out of that cave. They were taken to a hospital A few days later, a picture was taken of every one of these kids alive. But their rescue didn't come without a cost. If you know the story, then you probably know this. There was a volunteer worker, 38-year-old volunteer, Saman Kunan, who passed away during the effort to save these boys. His job was to put the, the oxygen tanks along the route from where the boys were, over two miles away to where the, the entrance of the cave was, where they could be rescued. And in trying to complete that part of his job, he died. And I bring that up for two reasons. One, one is to honor his sacrifice. But also, I think it's a reminder to us that there is a cost to being a part of the rescue team. And that if as a disciple of Jesus you decide to be a part of the international rescue team that God has put together, it will likely cost you something. It may cost you financially. It may cost you relationally. It may cost you personally. It may cost uh, your time, your talent, your resources. It, It may cost you your life. But if you're willing to pay the price, lives can be saved. And I think that's why for you and I, discipleship is so important. This is why it is so important that you stay committed to reading the Word of God, to reading the words of Jesus, to prayer. That's why it's so important that you belong to this church or to a church, to a faith family, to a community of believers who can come around you. Because when the time comes, and it will come if you are a disciple of Jesus, when the time comes... For you to be sent, for you to be deployed. When God puts someone in front of you that needs to know, to experience, to to, to feel the the amazing, saving love of God, you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready. 
You've got to be ready to go. You've got to be ready to share. You've got to be ready, ready to tell. You've got to be ready to pay the price, whatever it is. Because the movement of Jesus always points others to the amazing love of God. And that's the move that God wants us to make too. To trace that movement of Jesus and to make the same move in our lives to, to where, wherever we're moving to. And especially a lot of you, as you go back to school this week, you'll have an opportunity. A lot of you, as you go back to work this week, you'll have an opportunity. All of us, when we go home today, will have an opportunity to point others to the amazing love of God. To tell others they are loved. You know, that is one of the most powerful things you can say to a person. To look at them in the eye and tell them, God loves you. There is a God, and he knows your name, and he loves you. So the question we ask ourselves every day, as disciples of Jesus, as a people, a part of the rescue team, the international rescue team of Jesus, is simply that question. Who is God? Who has God put in my path? Who has God put in... In, in, in front of me today who needs to hear the message of God's great love. Because I'll tell you, there are people all around us, some of whom are trapped in darkness. And they don't know if rescue's going to come. There are people all around us who are hopeless. And they don't know if anyone sees or if anyone cares. There are people all around us and they're not sure if there is a God. And if there is a God, he's probably mad at them. And they need someone to come alongside them and tell them of the great and amazing, the wonderful, unconditional love of God. Church, if you would, let's, let's stand. Yesterday, um, it was raining here in Coppell. But typically on Saturday, I like to get out and run, and it really helps me in a lot of ways. And so the rain stopped for a moment. I thought, this is my chance. So I got out my running shoes, and I went out, and I hit the, hit the road and the trails. And you know what happened. About 10 minutes later, the bottom dropped out, and it's raining in the deluge. But I discovered I wasn't the only person that had that idea. In fact, I ran by about 15 or 20 more people who were out running in the rain. And when, as we would pass each other, we would just wave and smile. And sort of the common theme was, at least it's not hot. <laughs> and if you were driving by in your car, you probably looked at, looked at us and thought we were crazy or strange or weird. And you're probably right. But one thing we all had in common was we had a mission to get out and to go for a run. And we weren't going to let, let a little bit of rain get in our way from getting that run in. If I'm being honest, and I'm not being critical, but if I am being honest, I think we can all say this. This is a safe place to say this. We've let a lot of things get in the way of our mission. As a church, we've let a lot of things get in the way of our mission. We've let our opinions, our traditions, our preferences, we've let, we've let, our desire to keep the peace inside these four walls prevent us from going out and being a part of the mission of God outside these walls. And I say all that because I want us to reclaim that white, hot sense of mission to go into all the world and not let anything keep us from sharing the good news of the love of God. 
Because I truly believe in my heart of hearts that if I were to ask anyone in the room today, is there anything you wouldn't do to help someone else have an encounter with Jesus? Your answer would be no. There is nothing I wouldn't do to help someone who needed to encounter Jesus have an encounter with Jesus. And so for those of us today in the room who are believers in Jesus and followers of Jesus, today I I just want to I want to recommission you. I want to recommission myself. I want us to be recommissioned with the words of Jesus to go into all the world and tell the world of the unfailing love of God. For God did send his one and only son into the world so that anyone, everyone, all who believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And if you're here today and you feel like you're the one that needs rescue, if you feel like you're trapped in a dark place, I want to let you know you're in a room full of rescue workers. In fact, I'm going to ask our shepherds and their wives to make themselves available around the room. And we're going to sing a song. And and if you need someone to pray with you today, they would love to do that. They would love to usher you from your darkness into the light of God. They would like to tell you about the great love of God. They would like for you to know that there is a God who knows your name, who knows your circumstance, and who loves you and who is with you. But they're not the only rescue workers in the room. There are other people around you. And if during this song, if you just need to put an arm around somebody, uh, grab their hand, that'll be a signal. Let that be a signal that they just need you to pray for them and they can stop singing and they can just start praying over you right then and there because there are rescue workers all in the room. And I know that this is true of those in this room, that we want to see more and more people ushered from darkness into light to leave that place of being trapped and enter into God's freedom. And if you've never experienced the rescue of God, I'll close with this. This year we've seen 14 rescues. We've seen 14 lives saved. We've seen 14 people be baptized into Christ. And today if you want to be baptized, if you want to, if you want to truly leave darkness and walk through the water into the light of Christ, we would love to see that happen today. Come find me. I'll be right over here. Find one of these men and their wives. They would love to talk to you about that. We'd love, we'll stay as long as it takes because we believe in rescue. Amen, church? We believe and a God of rescue, and we want to be a church of rescue. We want to be a part of building God's kingdom and seeing things on earth made as they are in heaven. Let's sing.